back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And a legend that refuses to go away. The treasure of Dutch Schultz. A New York City mobster who is by anyone's standards as bad as they come. He was a bootlegger, a cold-blooded murderer, and he lived and died by the bullet. By the time he was shot down while having dinner at the Palace Chop House and Tavern in Newark, New Jersey, by a rival mob outfit named Murder Incorporated, in 1935, he had amassed a fortune in loot, mostly profits from both bootleg liquor sales and a restaurant protection ring that forced restaurant owners to hand over thousands to avoid being beaten, killed, or having their businesses burned down around them. Back in those days, mobsters couldn't trust any banks, and Swiss banks hadn't become popular yet. So criminals kept their cash well hidden, literally in steel safes. Legend has it that when Schultz felt the walls closing in around him, he and his most trusted sidekick, Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz, loaded a specially built air and watertight safe containing $7 million in cash and bonds, the equivalent of $130 million today, and headed toward the Catskills to bury it. The Catskills are a chain of ancient mountains located about 100 miles north-northwest of New York City. It wasn't all of Schultz's money, because he would be using a bunch of money soon to pay off his lawyers, who would be getting him an acquittal, which would put him back out on the streets again. But it was a big sum worth millions that the feds would never find, should the worst happen. Why the Catskills? Wooded, barely traveled, remote, and there was a little hotel and restaurant there with owners that didn't ask any questions when guys wearing fedoras and driving expensive cars stopped by for a quiet getaway. As legend goes, when they reached the tiny hamlet of Phoenicia, about 22 miles north of Kingston and 13 miles west of Woodstock, in other words, in the middle of nowhere, Dutch and Lulu took a dirt road that ran along Esopus Creek, about three miles south of town, and as legend goes, stopped at a good spot, and while Rosencrantz dug the hole, Dutch, as legend has it, carved an X on a tree to mark the spot. Then Rosencrantz pulled the chest out of the trunk of the Packard, dragged it to the hole, and buried it. Several weeks later, after swearing Rosencrantz to secrecy, Dutch surrendered to authorities in Albany. At least that's how the story goes. Obviously, there are a few holes in the story, such as why would Dutch trust Rosencrantz not to go and dig up the treasure as soon as he, Dutch, turned himself in? Well, maybe Rosencrantz knew that his life wouldn't be worth a plugged nickel if he made a move for the money. What we know for sure is that after Dutch Schultz was shot, he was taken to a Newark hospital, and in his last hour he was accompanied by a police stenographer named John Long, who had been instructed to write down any information that the dying gangster might want to give up regarding his long string of murders and robberies. Investigators were also very curious as to what had become of Dutch's wealth, and that's when Dutch told Long about he and Rosencrantz transporting $150 million in gold, banknotes, bonds, and diamonds to a remote location near the town of Phoenicia. But Schultz was vague on the directions. Well, there's a lot more to this story that needs to be told, like how Dutch came by all that money, about a map that Rosencrantz made, and into whose hands that map eventually fell, and a bunch of ruthless killings, a few tireless federal agents, some squealing tires, some Tommy guns, and a who's who of East Coast 30s gangsters. And we've got a story that'll keep you on the edge of your seat. And, by the way, there's still a lot of people looking for that buried chest, and Dutch Schultz's money was never found. 
So maybe there's something to this legend after all. It's great to be back with you, everybody. So settle back, grab your favorite drink, have a little relaxed time, and listen to another great legend at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Dutch Schultz was born Arthur Simon Flegenheimer on August 6, 1901, into a German-Jewish-American family in Brooklyn, New York. And the reason you never heard of Arthur Flegenheimer is because Dutch said that Flegenheimer wouldn't fit on the front page of the New York papers, which is where he wanted to be, and which is where he ended up for a couple of years, in the crime section. His father Herman abandoned the family while Arthur was still a boy, causing him to drop out of school in 8th grade so he could support his mother and younger sister. Between 1916 and 1919, he worked as a feeder and press man for a local printing company as well as Schultz Trucking Company in the Bronx. By the age of 18, he was working at a neighborhood nightclub owned by a small-time mobster, where he picked up extra money robbing crap games, then turning soon to burglary. He was also gaining a reputation as a brutal kid with a hair-trigger temper. Despite his only being five foot seven, he liked weapons and didn't hesitate to use them. But he soon got caught breaking into an apartment and was sent to prison on Blackwell's Island, which is known as Roosevelt Island today. Now, Blackwell's Island was actually a lunatic asylum before it became a prison, and there is a future 1001 story there. It became the holding place for thousands of New York City's homeless, and if you weren't insane when you were sent there, it was pretty much a guarantee that you soon would be, given the present company. Back in 1871, newspaperman Joseph Pulitzer sent a female journalist named Nellie Bly in there, undercover as a patient, to get a story. This was back in the day when journalists would risk their lives to get a story, and she did. And I'll get to this story one day in the coming weeks and months. It is incredible. Needless to say, Nellie Bly's story, titled Ten Days in a Madhouse, sparked a grand jury investigation that rocked the city. At Blackwell's, Dutch proved unmanageable, so they sent him to a work farm in West Hampton, Long Island, where he escaped but was recaptured, adding an extra two months to his sentence. He was paroled December 8, 1920, and went back to work for Schultz Trucking, which, when prohibition was enacted and public establishments were prohibited from selling liquor, began smuggling beer and liquor into New York City from Canada. This was where small-time crook Arthur Flegenheimer started associating with some big-time crooks, and where he changed his name to Dutch Schultz. By the mid-twenties, up-and-coming Dutch was working as a bouncer at the Hub Social Club, a small speakeasy in the Bronx owned by a gangster named Joey Noy. Speakeasies, by the way, got their name back in 1889 when a Pennsylvania newspaper wrote a story about unlicensed saloons and said people were calling them speakeasies because people spoke quietly when referring them to a friend, not wanting the news of their presence reaching the local law. Back rooms in speakeasies also became popular places for illegal numbers betting, a very profitable business for the men who operated them. And Schultz was, if nothing else, a quick learner, and he had the ability to lead others and inspire fear, so that by the age of 22, he had risen to a prominent position in organized crime, operating a number of rackets, including illegal taverns, gambling houses, distilleries, bootlegging, nightclubs, houses of prostitution, and a host of others. All this attracted the attention of federal agents, who named him public enemy number one, 
and did their best to take him down. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It was around this time that Dutch picked up a personal bodyguard and driver named Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz, whom he paid very well, and who stayed loyal to Dutch till the end. Joey Noyes saw promise in this young upstart, especially admiring Schultz's capacity for violence and intimidation, and his hair-trigger temper was a bonus, so he made him a partner. Together they used their own fleet of trucks to run bootleg beer being made by Frankie Dunn in Union City, New Jersey and Schultz liked to ride shotgun on those runs. Their first obstacle was the Rock Brothers, John and Joe, who had a bootlegging operation in the Bronx. At first they wouldn't buy beer from Noe and Schultz, but then John, the older brother, saw the light and agreed to cooperate. The younger brother, Joe, basically said, screw you, to Noe and Schultz, and soon Joe disappeared. As it turned out, Schultz and Noe's gang, for it was a gang now, had kidnapped him, given him a thorough beating, and hung him by his thumbs from a meat hook. Then one of them, probably Dutch, wrapped a gauze bandage smeared with discharge from a gonorrhea infection over Joe's eyes, kept him barely alive, and let Joe's brother know they wanted 35000 in return for Joe. John paid, but Joe soon went blind, and the Noe Schultz gang soon owned all the bootlegging businesses in the Bronx. Soon Dutch was pocketing 50 k a month, and he and Noe had one of the only two non-Italian gangs that could stand up to the Mafia's five families, the other being Jack Leg Diamond's Irish gang. Dutch and Legs Diamond clashed when Dutch and Noe expanded their territory from the Bronx over to Manhattan's Upper West Side and the neighborhoods of Washington Heights, Yorkville, and Harlem, moving their headquarters to 149th Street, Manhattan. In the early hours of October 16, 1928, as Noe was departing his Chateau Madrid speakeasy at 231 West 54th, a Tommy gun burst rang out and Noe fell back, seriously wounded, but still able to return fire. Witnesses later reported seeing a blue Cadillac hitting some parked cars and losing one of its doors before speeding away. Police found the car about an hour later with the body inside, that of Louis Weinberg, in the back seat. Noe had survived the ambush, but his wounds became infected and he died a little more than a month later. History doesn't tell us, but it is doubtful that Noe would have checked himself into a hospital as he was a wanted man and probably tried to treat the wounds himself. It wasn't long before Schultz had figured out who had ordered the hit. An order to revenge hit on Jewish mob boss Arnold Rothstein as he was coming out of the service entrance of the Park Central Hotel. I stayed there once and it's an old hotel, but it was a pretty fancy one back in the 30s. It was George Hump McManus that had done the killing, but got off with the help of one of Schultz's attorneys named Dixie Davis. All Davis had to do was come up with a few witnesses who said they were with McManus that night at a location far away, and money could buy any amount of witnesses. It was common for crime bosses to hole up in hotel suites, sometimes buying an entire floor, as money was no object, and Leg Diamond's place 
was at the Hotel Monticello on Manhattan's west side. On October 12, 1930, two of Schultz's hired thugs shot their way past Diamond's guards and burst into his room, shooting him five times before fleeing. Still in his pajamas, Diamond staggered into the hallway and collapsed, but survived. And after spending two months at New York's polyclinic, Diamond left New York and his gambling enterprise behind and left for a lengthy stay in Europe. The police knew he was a crime kingpin, but they had nothing on him. When Diamond did return from Europe, he went to Albany this time with dreams of starting a brand new enterprise. He was staying in a cheap rooming house at 67 Dove Street in Albany since he had apparently left his fortune behind. But two gunmen entered those new enterprise dreams in December of 1931. When Schultz heard the circumstances of where Diamond was found in a cheap boarding house, unbefitting a kingpin of crime, which Diamond had been, he no doubt decided then and there that he would have to stash some of his wealth just in case he needed it in the future. On subsequent trips to the Catskills, which seemed to draw city gangsters like flies to a barn, he probably started looking for just the right spot. In 1930, Dutch Schultz was dealing with the problems of how to successfully run a multifaceted crime operation in which everyone wanted to be top dog. One of Dutch's enforcers named Vince Call suddenly demanded to be an equal partner. Dutch handled payroll a little bit differently. Rather than give a piece of the take to various operators, Dutch gave them a flat salary based upon their value to him. Dutch refused Call's offer, and Call went his own way, putting together his own gang of cutthroats with the goal of murdering Dutch and taking over all his business. A bloody gang war followed in which Call lost his older brother Pete and earned the nickname Mad Dog after a child was killed during a botched assassination attempt. The killing of that five-year-old boy enraged the public, which put more pressure on the police and feds to stamp out crime. But in 1930, as the Depression was getting underway, there were a lot of cops on the take, and organized crime had a hold on just about everyone, all the way to the top. Schultz finally caught up with Call in February of 1932, when they somehow lured him into a drugstore phone booth saying there was a call for him. Boy, that phone call trick always gets you. And Edward Fats McCarty and the brothers Bo and George Weinberg gunned him down, and right in front of witnesses who saw and heard nothing, as you might expect. On December 5, 1933, Prohibition ended, and a collective sigh of relief could be heard across America, with the exception of the crime bosses, who had to find other means of making money than selling and brewing the illegal booze. Schultz quickly found his mark in the numbers racket and hired a guy named Otto Abadaba Berman to mastermind the Harlem numbers racket, which Abadaba did brilliantly, ensuring Schultz winning numbers and millions of dollars in illegal tax-free profits. Abadaba Berman was paid 10000 a week for his experience. Dutch still wanted more, so he began extorting New York restaurant owners for protection, using strong-arm tactics and even stink bombs. And nothing could clear out a restaurant faster on a Friday night than a stink bomb. Schultz then formed the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Association and merged all the local unions into that and appointed the hokey gangster Julie Martin as point man for this nefarious enterprise. Martin really got into his work, beating and threatening restaurant owners into paying the union dues as high as $12,000 a month for protection. If they went to the police, they were dead. If they fought back, they were dead. If they didn't have the money, one of their kids would disappear for a while. 
It was a real family-oriented business. There was one man who couldn't be bought, sort of like Elliot Ness and his band of untouchables in Chicago, a story which you'll find in our archives right here. This guy was named Thomas E. Dewey, and he was a U.S. attorney. He was looking at taking down Schultz for tax evasion, the same way that Al Capone was finally taken down in Chicago. Dewey did get Schultz convicted the first time in a Manhattan court, but Dutch's attorney successfully argued that he couldn't get a fair trial in New York City, to which the judge, no doubt fearful for his life, agreed, moving the venue to the small town of Malone in rural upstate New York. It was during this trial the Dutch was beginning to suspect Julie Martin, his restaurant shakedown point man, of skimming off the top. Dutch invited Martin to a meeting at the Harmony Hotel in Cohoes, New York, in the company of chief enforcer and killer Bo Weinberg and Schultz's lawyer Dixie Davis. Schultz leveled the accusation to Martin at that time, and Martin got belligerent, arguing with Dutch. Both were drinking heavily as the argument wore on, until Dutch sucker-punched Martin. Martin got up, and knowing that any further resistance on his part would probably get him killed, admitted taking a measly 20000 which he believed, he said, he was entitled to anyway. Then Dixie Davis related what happened next. Dutch Schultz was ugly. He'd been drinking, and suddenly he had his gun out. Schultz wore a pistol under his vest, tucked inside his pants, right against his belly. All in the same quick motion, he swung it up, stuck it in Jules Martin's mouth, and pulled the trigger. It was as simple and undramatic as that. Just one quick motion of the hand. Dutch Schultz did that murder just as casually as if he were picking his teeth. As Martin was writhing on the floor, Schultz apologized to Davis for killing someone in front of him. When Davis later read a newspaper account about Martin's murder, he was shocked to find that the body was found on a snowbank with a dozen stab wounds to the chest. When Davis asked about this, Dutch replied, I cut his heart out. By now the trial in the little town of Malone was heating up, and Dutch Schultz was making the rounds, presenting himself as a country squire and a big friend to the people. He was even publicly performing charitable deeds, giving toys to sick children and donating cash to struggling businesses, of which there were many. This was the Depression, after all. He was becoming the Robin Hood of Malone. It was no surprise to anyone when the hero of Malone, Arthur Flegenheimer, was declared innocent of tax evasion by a jury, by a Malone jury, in the late summer of 1935. At any rate, Schultz moved his office to Newark across the river. Buying his way out of difficulties had been getting expensive for Dutch, and the cash flow was drying up. When Dutch's chief hitman, Bo Weinberg, paid a secret visit to New York crime boss Longies Willman, Swillman recommended him to Sicilian-born mobster Lucky Luciano, and Luciano and fellow Italian mob boss Meyer Lansky listened as Bo laid out his plan to take out Dutch and take control of Dutch's crime syndicate. But there were other pressing matters which needed to be taken care of first. Dutch was told from a reliable source that the feds now had the goods to indict him on income tax evasion, and this one he would not be able to get out of. He was charged, and arrest was coming any minute. Then Dutch fled to Bridgeport, Connecticut under cover of night, where he gathered up $150 million of his wealth, placed it in a specially made chest, and left Bridgeport in his custom Packard, which had been fitted with bulletproof windows, with Rosencrantz driving. They were headed for the Catskills. After arriving in the little hamlet of Phoenicia, Schultz ordered Rosencrantz to drive south along a dirt road 
bordering Esophis Creek. Here, Rosencrantz was told to dig a two-and-a-half-foot-deep hole in the pine and sycamore forest, and having finished, Rosencrantz dragged the safe to the hole, laid it in, and covered it with dirt. Schultz carved an X into a nearby tree with his knife so that he could find the spot some day in the future. Then Schultz ordered the authorities in New York, where again he would be tried and then released on counts of tax evasion, thanks to paying off a judge. During this time, Rosencrantz went into hiding, with one exception. He had a good friend named Maury Crompier, and the two often met for drinks at a Brooklyn tavern. As legend has it, after one night of heavy drinking, Lulu told Crompier about the buried treasure, and Crompier was able to draw a rude map of the location based on what Rosencrantz was telling him. Soon Schultz was released, and then wanted to get revenge on New York State Attorney Dewey, who had been making Schultz's life difficult. Schultz had also gotten wind that somehow Lucky Luciano had been in discussions regarding Dewey, and Dutch started sucking up to Luciano. Very unusual for Schultz, who even became a Catholic just to impress Luciano. During that time, Dutch made that traitor Bo Weinberg disappear. He knew too much anyway. Dutch then made a proposition to Luciano and his National Crime Syndicate that they use their combined efforts to take down the U.S. Attorney, Dewey. And Luciano said they'd discuss it and get back to him. Well, yeah, they got back to him by sending Murder Incorporated's rising star Louis Buchalter to kill Schultz. But Buchalter was replaced at the last minute by two other hitmen, Charles the Bug Workman and Emmanuel Wendy Weiss. It was October 23, 1935. Schultz was dining at his favorite combined restaurant and office, the Palace Chop House at 12 East Park Street in Newark, with Otto Berman, his accountant, Abe Landau, his new hitman, and Lulu Rosencrantz. Schultz had excused himself from the business meeting and was at the sink in the bathroom washing his hands when Bug Workman, who had come into the back, checked the room. Workman didn't recognize Schultz, but let go around from his Tommy gun just to eliminate the potential witness. The rounds hit Schultz in the spleen, stomach, colon, and liver, but he would hang on for almost two days. The two killers then entered the dining area and began spreading lead at other men. Berman collapsed immediately after being shot. Landau's carotid artery was severed by a bullet which passed through his neck, while Lulu Rosencrantz was shot a number of times at point-blank range. Despite his injuries, despite their injuries, Landau and Rosencrantz both managed to get to their feet and return fire, driving the assassins out of the restaurant and out to their cars. Landau even chased Workman out of the bar and emptied his pistol at him. Weiss made it to the car first and ordered the driver to leave, abandoning his counterpart Workman. Landau at the end of his tether, Landau at the end of his tether, collapsed onto a garbage can. Inside, Schultz had staggered out of the bathroom, his hand at his side, and sat down at his table. He called for anyone who could hear him to get an ambulance. Rosencrantz, though shot numerous times in the chest, rose to his feet, leaned over the bar, and told the barman who was hiding on the floor to get up and give him some change so he could use the payphone. He then called for an ambulance and passed out on the floor. Only one ambulance arrived, and the medics had to make a determination of who was hurt the worst, so they picked Landau and Rosencrantz, whom they drove to New York City Hospital. Someone inside then called a second ambulance for Schultz and Berman, probably the bartender. Berman was unconscious, but Dutch was hovering in and out of consciousness 
while police try to comfort him and get information about what had happened. When a second ambulance arrived from Newark City Hospital, Dutz gave the intern in the ambulance $3,000 in cash, saying it wouldn't help him where he was going. After surgery, when it looked like Schultz might indeed survive, the intern was so worried that Schultz might come back or send one of his thugs to retrieve the cash that he handed the money back to the police. At 2.20 the next morning, the attorney, Berman, died. He was followed by Landau at 6 a.m. When Rosencrantz was taken into surgery, the doctors were so amazed he was alive after all the blood loss and being perforated with bullets that they didn't know how to treat him. He lingered after surgery, flitting in and out of consciousness, and at one point, according to legend, he called a young nurse to his side and told her the story of Dutch Schultz's treasure near Esopus Creek. He even asked her for a pencil and paper to draw a map, and she left the room to get one, but by the time she returned, Lulu Rosencrantz was dead. Hours after the surgery, Schultz was baptized and read his last rites from a Catholic priest, then lingered in his post-surgery hospital bed as his wife, mother, priest, police, and hospital staff took turns at his bedside. Dutch was still alive, but barely, in another room of the hospital. When he was told of Lulu's death, he sagged back, expressing sadness at the loss of his loyal friend. It was police stenographer John Long who had passed along the news of Rosencrantz's death, and it was Long who was asking Dutch for details of his many murders, as well as where all the money was. And that was when Dutch Schultz told of his transporting of $150 million in gold, banknotes, bonds, and diamonds to a remote location near the town of Phoenicia, where it was buried in a steel safe that Schultz had had specially built for him recently. Although there are a number of different versions of Schultz's dying words, none are too coherent. The one most found in print is, Oh, Mama, Mama, I'm a pretty good pretzler. How many shots were fired at me? John, please, did you buy me a hotel for a million? I'll get you the cash out of the box. There's enough in it to buy four or five more. You can play jacks and girls and do that with a softball and do tricks with... Lulu, drive me back to Phoenicia. Don't be a dope, Lulu. We better get those Liberty Bonds out of the box and cash them. Sure, it was Danny's mistake to buy them, and I think they can be traced. Danny, please get me in a car. Kindly take my shoes off. They're not off. There's handcuffs on them. I wonder who owns these woods. He'll never know what's hidden in them. My gilt-edged stuff and those rats have tuned in. What did that guy shoot me for? Soon, there were all kinds of versions of the legend of Dutch Schultz's buried treasure. Most of them involved Phoenicia. Most told of a map. But in some of them, the burial spots were different. Some told of a spot somewhere along Highway 28 between the roadway and Esopus Creek. But still, the most popular is that both men drove to Phoenicia on that April night, 1933, and buried it near a stand of pine trees along the creek bank. There, Dutch placed an X on one of those trees. When Dutch Schultz died... He took everything he knew with him. His money was never found, and it is known he didn't trust banks. He liked cash, gold, and diamonds, and they were never found. The direction Schultz gave the stenographer were vague. Investigators traveled there to Phoenicia the next day, attempting to locate the place where the safe was buried, but they had no luck. After Dutch died, 
two people were left with maps to the treasure, Marty Crompier and the nurse. Crompier tried to find the spot, but lost the map that Lulu had given him, then made the trip anyway, but failed to find anything, and returned home. But his habit of drinking too much led him to tell someone else that he had the treasure map of Dutch Schultz's treasure, and for that he paid his life. Crompier had only been home a week when he found the map in a jacket pocket, and soon was making plans for a second try at the treasure. He mentioned finding his map in a local tavern that same evening, and the following day he was shot and killed while getting a haircut. The killer was Jake Shapiro, who had a rival gang, and who thought he could kill two birds with one bullet, killing a business rival and taking his treasure map, which was conveniently stuffed in Marty's wallet when Jake stole it from his pants pocket while still in the barber's chair. Shapiro spent two days hunting along Isapas Creek, but found nothing. He returned home, and two days later was arrested in Kingston, New York, and charged with Marty's murder. Shapiro was tried, sentenced, and condemned to death in the electric chair at Sing Sing. What became of the map, which no one ever found, is not known. A few years after the death of Rosencrantz, the nurse came forward with the direction she said he had given her, and she commissioned a pair of fortune hunters to go and give a look. But no luck there. One interesting tale did pop up in the 1970s. It was told by an old-timer who claimed to have first-hand knowledge of the day that Schultz and Lulu buried that treasure. He says the treasure was buried the same day the Dutch was shot in Newark. The Dutch and Rosencrantz had stopped for lunch around noon that day at a hotel restaurant in Phoenicia at the center of town. They left around 1 p.m. in their Packard, driving half a block, whereupon they made a right-hand turn onto Route 214. They then proceeded north along Stony Clove Creek for about eight miles and then buried the money below a skull-shaped rock formation known as the Devil's Face. As his story goes, the two men were back in Phoenicia by three and then returned to Newark. The distance? 118 miles, or about two hours and six minutes. People have been trying to find that treasure for 80 years. One crafty Phoenician motel operator allowed treasure hunters to dig on his property, provided they signed a document promising him a share of the loot, until someone with a backhoe put dozens of holes in his front yard, and then he pulled the offer forever. About 20 years ago, Fox Cable came to Phoenicia to film an episode for the new show, Million Dollar Mysteries. There have been a few movies, TV shows, and documentaries about Dutch Schultz, the best known being... Portrait of a Mobster, a 1961 movie starring Vic Morrow as Dutch. Also around the time, a movie called Mad Dog Call, starring Vincent Gardenia, was put out. Then there was The Cotton Club, starring James Ramarin back in 1984. And Billy Bathgate, strange name for a movie about Dutch Schultz, but that's what it was, starring Dustin Hoffman. And there was Hoodlum, starring Tim Roth in 1997. On TV in 1959, there was an Untouchables episode, The Dutch Schultz Story, which was a big hit, followed by a second Untouchables story about Dutch Schultz in 1993, with Cy Osborne playing Dutch Schultz. Another legend says that the Isapas Creek location lies on a straight line between Mount Tobias and Panther Mountain. How does the old saying go, build a field and they will come? Bury a five or fifty million dollar treasure and they will come. And often, carrying books, spades, metal detectors, and dreams. 
Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Be sure to catch our long-format stories podcast at 1001 Stories for the Road, where you'll find everything from Jack London's Call of the Wild to H.P. Lovecraft to Sherlock Holmes, and also 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and 1001 Greatest Love Stories, our two short story collection podcasts. And for those of you who like old-time radio, try 1001 Radio Days, my hand-picked selection of Western and crime drama with an occasional radio theater thrown in. We do appreciate reviews at all our 1001 shows. And here are a few recent ones for you. Tales Well Told, 5 stars. Great historical research, told with earnest delivery. That one from Bartleby the Listener, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, awesome, 5 stars. This is a great podcast. I listen to the stories faithfully on my way to work, at work, or on days off having my morning coffee. The stories are very well researched and told, and I always look forward to the next episode. Thanks, and keep it up. That one from Ponza97, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, love it, five stars. This is why we have phones and podcasts. Thanks, John. Down from Chico Artist, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so, so very much for all those reviews. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern with a brand new story at 1001 Heroes. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.